This is what happened in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. At that time, King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in the castle of Shushan. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and his servants, the military leaders of Persia and the media, plus the nobles and the officials of the provinces were present. He displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty for many days, 180 days. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the garden court of the king's palace for all the people who were present in the palace at Shushan for both the greatest to the least. There were white and blue linen curtains hung by cords of fine linen and purple on silver rings and marble columns, gold and silver couches, on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, marble, mother of pearl, and minerals. Wine was served in golden goblets, each of which was different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant according to the king's wealth. In keeping with the law, there were no restrictions on drinking, for the king had instructed the supervisors of his household to comply with each person's desire. In addition, Queen Vashti held a banquet for the women of the royal palace of King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry from the wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who attended Ahasuerus the king to bring Queen Vashti before the, the king wearing the royal crown. He wanted to show the people and the officials her beauty, for she was very attractive. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command conveyed by the eunuchs. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. For some of you folks, um, poor him which by the way means lots. By the way, did you know that lots were basically dice that were cast and they were used as part of determining the will of God even in the book of Acts? Yeah. Anyways, Purim, um, which we'll hear about quite a bit tomorrow because our Darling young adults have put together a play, and they will tell us all about the story. But I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. Assuming that not everybody here has grown up with Purim, as my family has. In fact, uh, periodically, we bring out the old photos. You know, that's before cell phones and such. And uh, I remember looking at a picture of my sister who was 13 at the time, I think, dressed as a Dutch girl. Uh, why would a Jewish girl dress as a Dutch girl? On Purim, you're supposed to be absolutely goofy. And I was dressed as a cowboy with my six-shooter, and uh, I was very, very uh, intimidating. If you believe that, I have a bridge in Brooklyn for you. But in any event, um, we celebrate, and, uh, you know, you may have heard the, the old um, joke, as it were, that they try to kill us. God wouldn't let them, now let's eat, <laughs> which is typical of quite a few of the Jewish holidays, 
and of course Purim being one of those. And it, you know, we we celebrate and it's fun and even to the point of being goofy. By the way, the rabbis, uh, or at least some of them, said that you should celebrate it to such an extent that you would know the difference between Haman and Mordechai. Uh, now that's some serious celebration. Um, but on, on a more sober note, you know, uh, we often forget that if you didn't have Purim and what took place in Purim, then you would not have had Hanukkah. And if you didn't have Hanukkah, you would not have had the coming of Yeshua because there would be no such thing as Jewish people. Um, a potential Holocaust was an inch away from happening at a time when Jewish people were not in really in great shape. Uh, you may not realize that uh, Israel's spiritual life was not great at this point uh, because the nation was about 1,900 miles away from Jerusalem. That's where Susa or Shushan is. And um, remember that Israel's spiritual life, the focus of Israel's spiritual life was the temple. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about Chronicles and Chronicles 7, where the Lord promised to Israel that if uh, the people call by my name, if they uh, turn to me and repent, I will hear from heaven and hear their prayer from this place, the temple in Jerusalem. And so in Shusha, uh, Shusha, Shushan, by the way, was one of the four Persian capitals um, because sometimes it got incredibly too hot and the king could not stand being in, in, in a capital that was 110 degrees in the shade. So Susa was one of those capitals. But you can imagine that there was not a great deal of uh, spiritual life for Jewish people. Um, there was always the danger of assimilation and... Um, then on top of that, you have a king, Achashverosh, in Greek, Xerxes. And history tells us that Xerxes was a great king. He was an empire builder. Um, he crushed a rebellion in Egypt. He attempted to, to do the same with the Greeks. But in the process, he broke his teeth. In other words, he failed miserably, and he came back uh, to Persia. And it seems that the remaining, remaining years of his reign um, were somewhat in decline. And the picture that we have of Ahasuerus here um, is not really a very flattering picture. Um, everything seems to be excessive, hyperbolic, over the top. Uh, we don't know where he got um, all the uh, amazing um, property that he had. It seems like he probably plundered different nations, but uh, what we see here, if you can imagine a celebration, a party of 180 days um, for people from all over his empire, and... Um, 
part of the picture was not only the celebration, but Ahasuerus's, um, oh, let me see if I can spit it out, uh, massive ego. Uh, in verse 4, uh, the, language, the language really sticks out if you read it in Hebrew. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. Kvod malchuto. Uh, that's a phrase, that, by the way, that we recite each Shabbat as part of our Torah service, referring to the majesty of God. Exactly the same kind of language, which obviously tells you what Ahasuerus thought of himself. Um, the language that's used here to describe him uh, is very much of what we find in Scripture to describe God. And he apparently wanted everybody to love him, you know, which is typical of, of, a, of a, a poor king, that he made sure that everybody had as much vino to drink as they want. Um, so you can imagine that with that, um, everybody was happy and thought wonderfully well of the king. Uh, and part of the picture, of course, the, we see here, and uh, again, this is a very uh, negative portrayal that we have of Ahasuerus. Uh, you put fire water into this gentleman and, and his thinking process is severely hampered. Um, verse, verse 10 of, of this chapter, on the seventh day when Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes, was in high spirits from wine, he said, bring my woman here. Uh, so the wine is talking through him. And um, by the way, uh, here when it speaks about high spirits, the Hebrew word is tov, which appears a lot in this passage, meaning plain old good um, something being good in one form or another. Chapter 7, we see the same influence of wine. Uh, the king gets up in a rage, and he leaves his wine, and he goes out. And this is, of course, when Haman is about to meet his doom. Uh, but what drives Ahasuerus is not only his temper, but, but the wine. And can't quite tell which is the chicken, which is the egg here. Uh, but his temper was like flash flood. You never knew quite when it would come, and when it did, um, it was deadly. In the case of Vashti, she was dethroned. In the case of Haman, he was uh, decapitated. So my point simply is that here you have the Jewish people living under a king who is unpredictable. And I don't know if you've been around people who are unpredictable, people in authority who are unpredictable. It makes life very, very scary, frankly, uh, because you feel like you are standing on very thin ice. And by the way, the, the word for anger uh, appears four times in seven chapters uh, in the book of Esther. Uh, 
and especially in chapter 1 here, verse 12, it tells us that the king becomes furious and he burns with anger. Um, the expression there has to do with the sense of the king's anger was crazy angry. In other words, uh, he was so out of control that he was about to blow like a volcano. Again, think about the implication of living under this kind of a king. On top of that, you have someone who is morally clueless. Uh, in chapter 3, we see that uh, Haman uh, talks to him and fills his ear with nonsense about the Jewish people, basically tr talks trash about the Jewish people living in, uh, in the Persian Empire and says, uh, these guys are different. And furthermore, they're not only different, they're not interested in keeping your commandments and keeping your decrees. In other words, they, they spit in your face. And of course, he gives zero evidence to support that. Um, and a king doesn't say to him, Oh, I don't know, uh, Haman. That's kind of harsh description of these people. I don't know them. Give me some evidence. The, the king simply says, here's my ring. Do with the people as you please. In other words, if you want to kill several million people, go at it. And even worse, in chapter 3, uh, an edict has been issued. Uh, runners, couriers are sent to all parts of the empire. And we're told in verse 15 of chapter 3, the king and Haman sit down to drink. But the city of Susa was bewildered. In other words, here you have in the capital city um, this message going forth that everybody who is a Jew needs to be killed in such and such a time. And then this is spreading to the rest of the empire. And everybody's confused. They have no clue what brought this on and why you're going to have these people killed. It's not as if there's been all kinds of time to prepare people and give them some kind of an understanding why this is happening. And the king and Haman sit down to drink. They've just signed the death decree for several million people. And it doesn't seem to make any kind of an impact morally, ethically, emotionally on these guys. So you can say that this is a low point in the story here. Well, it is a low point. And like... Lots of instances in the history of God's people of one kind or another. Uh, this is an example where you see um, low points in, in the fate of people. And there's not a whole lot of evidence to suggest that anything good is going to be happening. And yet, somehow... For us who operate on the basic premise that there is a God and that he's in control, we look for signs and evidence of his working in a given situation. 
because as, as you well know, the tables are going to be turning real soon. But initially, there doesn't seem to be any reason for hope. I mean, yes, you have a Jewish queen, but remember that with this unpredictable ruler, uh, she was a queen, but if she came and he was in a bad mood, he had a bad hair day, uh, her neck could be separated from her, the rest of her body. Uh, Mordechai um, did a great deed for the king, but the king seems to be so clueless he doesn't remember the fact that Mordechai just saved his life. Duh. Um, again, a, a real low point, very discouraging part of the story that just seems to turn on a couple of major coincidences. One, of course, is Mordechai's uh, discovering the assassination plot. And even more, in chapter 6, we see that the king has a sleepless night. And the Hebrew is very graphic. It, it literally says that uh, Ahasuerus's sleep ran away from him. That's a bad night. <laughs> so he wanted to do what, what would put him to sleep, and that involves reading from the historical records. I mean, that would put anybody to sleep. Not necessarily. So the question here at this point, as it always is, folks, is what is God thinking? What is God doing? And often it seems to be a mystery, but we have to re remind ourselves that God typically gives us basic clues about what it is that he's doing. And sometimes he gives us much more than clues. He gives us a strategic plan. And we know that there is a strategic plan here that God has in mind. A couple of things. First of all, God promised Israel that if they screwed up and continue to screw up, that he would try to get their attention. And if that didn't work the easy way, he would do it the hard way that exile would be the promised result if the nation stopped idolatry. In fact, in Leviticus 18, the Lord said, if you defile the land, it will, I know this is lunchtime, it will vomit you out as it vomited all the nations before you. And in chapter 26 of Le Leviticus, which we, ran, which we read portions of, in spite of this, if you do not listen to me but continue to be hostile to me, I will scatter you out among all the nations. Let me tell you something, folks. When God makes a statement, he does a good job. You find Jewish people in every one of the continents, including Antarctica. However, if we understand the prophets correctly, folks, it is never an issue of judgment and punishment. There's always, 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 always a promised restoration. That's a major reason, folks, why Yeshua came. It's a major reason 
what Yeshua, a major aspect of Yeshua's ongoing ministry today on our behalf. He's interceding for us, and he is at hard at work bringing about restoration and redemption. And so part of the strategic plan was that God told Israel, if in the land of your enemies, here, this is Leviticus 26, I will not reject them or abhor them to break my covenant with them. I am the Lord their God. In other words, you can take that statement to the bank. For their sake, I will remember my, the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God, I am the Lord. In other words, it goes back to God's previous plans, folks. And we often are clueless because we don't understand God's larger scheme, God's strategic plan and how he's been working in the past, how he continues to work now, how he'll continue to work in the future. And what the Lord is saying, guaranteed I'm going to throw you into exile if you don't stop the rotten behavior, but also guaranteed because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I will somehow find a way to restore you. And so here, this situation, Israel is in a very tenuous position. Life is unpredictable. Uh, by the way, I find it somewhat intriguing. I've read that Hitler was familiar with the Purim story, and he was quoted as saying that if the Third Reich would collapse, the Jewish people would celebrate another form of Purim. So this is a low point in, in Esther chapter 3, 4, 5, and 6. And it seems that Israel's existence is hanging by a thread. But God's restoration has to be fulfilled for the sake of Israel and for the sake of the nations. In fact, that's where we see that actually took place. Chapter, seven, chapter 8 of Esther, verse 17, many people of other nationalities became Jews because, of fear, uh, because the fear of the Jews has seized them. Now, we're not quite sure exactly what that means. Uh, Yahad could mean they pretended to be Jews. They um, took on some form of Judaism. The short version is they were scared out of their mind because they knew that something could happen to them. Again, turning of the tables. <laughs> Excuse me. And so, wh what is amazing, folks, is if you understand the sovereignty of God, again, the sovereignty of God means a couple of basic things. One, God has a plan. Secondly, God has the power to bring that plan into reality. And somehow, he just manages, somehow, to carry that out. You have a, a turning of the tables. And so, th the nation celebrates 
what took place in, in this celebration called Purim. By the way, it's not the first time in Scripture where we see God turning the tables. Another good example of that is the story of Joseph, how he rises up from being a slave to being second in command, and he states the following, you intended to harm me, but God intended for, for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So part of the picture with the Purim story is that whatever it is that God does with us always, always, always has to impact other people. And part of, part of reality, folks, when we're going through issues, when we're going through struggles, all we can see is the fact that we're having a tough time and our attitude is, God, get me out of here. I don't care about this person, that person, the other person. I know none of us would own up to that because we want to present an image that we're righteous, right? But the reality is that when we're going through a difficult time, what we see, what fills our screen is our own issues and we don't understand the sovereignty of God at any given point. We don't understand that God has everything that is necessary to get us out of a given situation and do so much more. Do so much more. Do the deeper work in us and because of that, then impact other people. And over a period of time, folks, I have come to this conviction I hope you have too, that our difficulties are prime time for Yeshua to do some deep, deep, deep significant work in our life. And we either welcome it or we essentially say to God, go away, please. I just need help. I just need relief. I don't need anything else. I don't want anything else. And if we have that kind of an attitude, we're really missing who God is and what God wants to do. And He is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or even imagine. Do we really want to limit God, tie tie his hands, so to speak, by saying to God, God, on a good day, you can only do this much. You can only accomplish this much. You can only get my, my, my rear out of the fire. No more. Do we really want to have that kind of an attitude? Or do we want to say, God, in any and all situations, you're able to do not the, just the superficial work, but the deep work. And we want that. We want you to have a greater and greater piece of who it is that we are. And that's true for us as a congregational mishpacha. That each of our celebrations will be prime time for Yeshua. In other words, yes, we're thinking Purim. And yes, we've got... Uh, the plays, and yes, we have the oneg, and yes, we have all kinds of moving parts 
and yes, people are going to be coming, etc., etc. However, in and through all of that, our expectation is to see the presence of God here touching our lives. And that doesn't mean to be grim. However, it doesn't mean to be so silly that we can't tell the difference between Haman and Mordechai. And so that is why we invest significant amount of time and energy praying for each of these holidays. Yeah, we can celebrate without it. However, we want to celebrate with the presence and the hand of God at work in our gathering together as a mishpacha. Because we firmly believe that in any and all situation, God wants to do things profoundly, significantly in our life. Can you say amen to that? That is also true of us as individuals. You know, you go see the doctor, and what comes to mind, you, you're thinking about, oh, what's going to happen? The doctor will check me out and find I have some sort of French disease. <laughs> and next thing I know, I will be hauled off in, in, uh, on a cart somewhere. Or you can come and say, God, you've got all things under your control. And this particular uh, receptionist, this particular nurse, this particular doctor needs to have an opportunity to see you reflected in me. Not that I'm such incredible piece of machinery, but they need to be able to see you. And so you go with that kind of expectation. Not merely to say, God, uh, do something so that I'm okay. We want more than that. Not because we have some kind of funky prosperity gospel, but because we know who our God is. and We want Him to receive a ton of honor and glory through each and every situation. And over a period of time, we discover, folks, that God does some of his best work when we are hurting the most. Why? Because then we are at a place where we are quiet. What a concept. We're quiet because we're desperate and have run out of answers and say, God, I need to hear from you. I don't have all the recipes for everything and the 10 best answers to this, that, and the other. I have no clue. God, I need you. And particularly, folks, when we are under a king as whacked out as Ahasuerus, and no, I'm not making any political statement, folks. And yes, we have some wonderful people in the government. We have some other folks in government who are, eh, we're supposed to pray for them. Why? Because we know who is the king, small K, and we know who is the king in capital letters. 
And folks, we often get so consumed with our reality that all we can see is the small king. We can't see the big king. And at the end of the day, folks, what makes the difference is that we are able to tune in to the big king and his strategy and his agenda and line up with it and say, okay, God, I don't understand how it's all going to fit. You have a plan. I know the plan is good. I am lining up as much as I know how, and I'm eager to see how that plan comes about. And regardless where you are spiritually, if you don't have a relationship with God, or if you've been following with Him for a number of years, regardless, all of us come to a point of crisis in our life. And these crises are God's opportunities, folks, to see the real king. And we choose not the small king, but the big king. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you. And we love you. We thank you that you're greater than any and all circumstances. We thank you, Lord God, that your mercy and your power transcend our way beyond all the things that we struggle with. We thank you, Lord, especially that when we don't have a clue, you have things nicely worked out. We pray for each one of us, Lord God, to have a clear sense of your presence to hear your voice, to hear your word, to receive it, to line up with it and receive the blessing that you have for us, Lord. Lord God, we simply pray for each one of us, Lord God, to hear you and to respond with a heart that is discerning. Speak to us, Lord God, as you have throughout the service. Receive much honor and glory. In the name of Yeshua. Amen.